Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. This special live episode of Origins is brought to you by the New American Express Business Gold Card. The New American Express Business Gold Card makes earning rewards easy. Business Gold Card members automatically earn four times membership reward points on the top two select categories where they spend the most each month. Business Gold also provides access to a suite of solutions, including a built-in pay-over-time feature, giving business owners the tools and flexibility they need to successfully run and grow their businesses. For full benefits and terms, visit mx.co slash business. Hi, this is Jim Miller, and welcome to a special Origins with James Andrew Miller podcast with guest Sarah Jessica Parker, brought to you by the American Express Business Gold Card. To celebrate the launch of the new Business Gold Card, I sat down with Sarah Jessica in Chicago before a live audience for an in-depth discussion on how she has turned her business ideas into gold. Best known as the Emmy Award-winning star of Sex and the City and countless other appearances in television, film, and on Broadway, Sarah Jessica Parker has recently added successful entrepreneur to her list of credits. And because this is Origins, we began by tracing the pedigree of Sarah Jessica's interest and involvement in starting her own business. Please join me in welcoming Jim Miller and Sarah Jessica Parker to the stage. Thanks for having us, and uh, thanks for inviting Sarah Jessica Parker. I think I've probably interviewed 2,000 people over the past decade, and she's one of my faves. So for for those of you who are expecting Mike Wallace tonight, um, you ain't going to get it. Well, we'll see how you feel in about an hour. We'll see. Might change your mind. I've been up to my eyes for the past month with Sex in the City because of this podcast. And um, (laughs) one of the things... uh, (laughs) One of the things that you mentioned when I interviewed you for it was that um, when you were first approached by Darren Starr, I think it was Eat Restaurant up mm-hmm. in the Upper East Side, he had made it clear that he had written the pilot with you in mind, but he also said something to you which you said was somewhat provocative, which was that he wanted to talk to you about producing the show as well, and you hadn't done that before. And I just want to see if there's some kind of connective tissue between you becoming a producer on Sex and the City and you starting to really think about B, capital business. Yes, uh, for me, there is, um, it is the connective tissue. It is, I see um, a very direct line. And I, I try to, to mention that as often as possible, not just to try to find a new way to thank Darren for the opportunity of you know the show in general, the part specifically, but also because um, because in essence he handed me another career. Um, he did. He said in that initial meeting, he said, "And you should you know you should produce the show with me." And I said, "I you know I've not produced television. I've, I'd not produced anything at that point in my life. I'd always been you know a journeyman. I was an actor for hire. I was extremely happy." with that. I thought that that was pretty much as good as as it gets and um, to be a working actor was really what I wanted and and he said and when I said to him I don't know anything about it he said no 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 you learn you learn you know you 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 pay attention you're in a room and you're with people who've done it and do it and um, he said first the first season we'll just call you a consultant and I said okay and I basically just did exactly that. I went to every meeting I could. I listened, you know, I said nothing. I knew what I knew. I knew what I didn't know. Um, I tried to ask questions. I never contributed a thought, a feeling, an opinion. And I also started to see the ways that people conducted themselves. And I would admire some, and I would use others as cautionary tales. I wouldn't want to behave in the same way or, um, and so that whole first season was enormously 
well, it was enormously beneficial, but it was a, it was a masterclass in, in producing because I was watching Darren Starr and ultimately Michael Patrick. And yeah, and, and the thing that I discovered that I loved was, was numbers, was business, was not just the creative conversation that you were privileged enough to be part of, but eventually it included numbers. Like it really did include thinking about, you know, pay and contracts and unions and... And shooting and just, schedules. I know yeah, you're shooting schedules and, and budgets and, you know, being smart about money, being strategic about money, being clever about money. And as somebody who hated math because I was bad at it and thought that I didn't have a head for it and, you know, have a, you know, had terrible PSAT scores, you know, was like nauseous before I took them, especially the math section. This was like a whole world opening up to me. So yes, that is the beginning, and it in fact is um, entirely due to Darren's generosity. Long answer to a short question. <laughs> You'll be getting a lot of that tonight. <laughs> I also talked to people on the crew and other cast members, and I think toward the end of the series in particular, you felt a different kind of responsibility in terms of not just being the star of the show, but because you were a producer, you really start to look at things like how many hours everybody would be working and the kind of breaks and asking HBO for certain things. I mean, you got pretty involved, uh, I think. Is yeah. that fair to say? Um, yes. I mean, I think appropriately involved. I wasn't, like, wielding power or, like, you know, drunk with it. I, um, you know, you... you I mean, as many of you probably here tonight, if, you've, if you work with a group of people for a nice amount of time, you, you care a great deal about their welfare, their health, their life with their family, a pregnancy, um, a personal issue, or you also want to see them be their best at work. You want to see everybody living up to their, to their fullest potential, and that's, you know, what kind of environment are they working in? And so all of it became important to me, but not just to me, to Michael Patrick King and also to John Melfi. And the three of us were sort of, we worked together, you know, shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, um, as a producing sort of trio. And we, you know, and the crew uh, and the cast were of, you know, great personal significance to, to me because I felt that they had invested a huge amount in, in us, the crew in particular. They'd sacrificed time with family. We were in infamously, we had infamously long hours. Like it was before everybody else had long hours and people were like, oh, you're on that show. Like, <laughs> and and you, it would, you would be asking so much of our crew and, and, and of our cast, but particularly the crew who, who do work every day. So you do feel responsible to and for them. But I think that's, it was not a burden, you know, it was a, it was a privilege to, to care about those people and, um, and to try to make their experience not only pleasant and creatively satisfying, but to let them know that they were appreciated and respected. Sarah Jessica just mentioned Michael Patrick King, and I'm only going to make one shameless plug for the uh, Origins podcast on Sex and the City, because uh, you'll get to hear Michael Patrick talk and there's something about this guy when he talks, and you'll understand the sensibilities and the rhythm and like the DNA of Sex and the City, even though Darren created the show, uh, you know, at the end of the second season, I guess, Michael Patrick took over, and yeah. I think that it's, he's just an amazing person and just a, a wonderful marriage between like a creative genius and yet still being able to run a writer's room and still yeah. be a great partner. He's like a, he can cast a spell. He's a spell caster. <laughs> yeah, he's just enormously gifted. So if we were all together, all of us say, here tonight, the week after Sex and the City went off the air, mm -hmm. uh, and I said to you, so what's on your mind? What's next? <laughs> it had been an exhausting 94 episodes. Yeah. And uh, you were swimming in the deep end of the pool in terms of the Time magazine, cover of Time magazine, and certainly capital Z zeitgeist. So what was on your mind? Was business on your mind or was... Initially, no. Um, I think, you know, it had been a very difficult decision to, to stop doing the show. Um, but Michael and I felt that the timing felt very right to us. And um, I had had a baby and uh, 
I felt that I had been able to be absent like in a way that I could stomach, I could live with. And I was starting to recognize that, I don't know, I didn't feel that I could rationalize the kind of absence that would still be required of me if I was still producing and, you know, being in front of the camera. So really the, the week after the show ended was, I mean, we didn't wrap until I think three or four that morning easily, I think. and. Um, we didn't get home until probably five or six that morning. And uh, I think I slept for the first time, like in years. Because I'd been working 90, you know, 90, 100 hour weeks for so long. And then I had a baby, and then I was, you know, working those hours or attempting to work less. And, you know, waking up in the middle of the night with baby. So I remember the first day I slept, like I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that there was nothing I had to do. Like I didn't owe anybody a phone call related to work. I didn't have to be on the set. I didn't have to have clean hair or, or be presentable in any way. Like I could be awful, like I could just, you know, and uh, I just, I think probably I, I didn't sleep for three days, but I think it was like restful for the first time. And I didn't think about work and I didn't concern myself too much with that the first, certainly the first week I didn't, and you know, I, it was a real treat to be with my son, you know, a lot, yeah. So fashion was a powerful engine in Sex and the City. Patricia Field is somebody you worked with on Miami Rhapsody and you had encouraged uh, HBO and Michael to speak with her, so she came over. When you started to think about a business life, could have done Magnolia Bakeries all over the place, I guess, for all that matter, or Cosmo stations. But um, yeah. some fashion had been something you had always been interested in. So can you talk about that initial decision to really become an entrepreneur outside of producing and, and start your own business? Yeah, so um, I guess the first thing that happened was, um, I think I started a, you know, I launched a fragrance about I think about 14 or 15 years ago, and um, because I had waited a long time to find a, the right partner to do that, and I found a great partner in Cody, and in particular my boss there, in essence, a woman named Catherine Walsh, who was this teeny woman, but a real dynamo, and she was a real, she was a real leader in her in her field, and once again, I thought, I'm going to pay a lot of attention to this woman, and. Um, and we got to create a fragrance the way I wanted to, and you know there were some old-fashioned ideas I had about a signature fragrance, which was sort of out of fashion, but I, but I felt pretty strongly about it, and I felt confident talking about those ideas with her because she was such an authority when she spoke. Not that she was, you know, like iron-fisted about it. She just simply was so good at what she did and was in a position to have an opinion and to not feel apologetic for it, and. Uh, I think she was just enormously impressive to me and um, became very influential in my life. And, I, and so I thought of that as, in a way, as an introduction to a different kind of business. Because the fragrance business is a very particular business. And it's a very competitive business. And I had no understanding of what it took to launch a fragrance. Like, I didn't have a clue as, you know, just in marketing, just, you know, just in getting, you know, retail space down to, you know, whether you're on an aisle or a corner of an aisle or how near to the door you are and how you get that space in, in retail. And all of it is just, an, it's brutal. It's cutthroat. And it's really competitive. And you're going up against, you know, fragrance houses with huge amounts of money. So it was a great, yet again, another lesson in business. And then these other doors, then I just kept having these experiences. And I, I think I kept having experiences in business because I was fortunate enough to be around people who were very good at what they did. And I am like a sponge. I want as much information as possible. I want information. I both want useless information because I'm interested and curious. And I want information that has like possibilities of like execution in it and um, that just kept happening to me how do you know when you're listening to the right person 
Well, I think when you're in a room, I mean, I'm guessing most of you have this experience too. I think when you're in a room with people and typically, you know, if I think about hearing from lots of people and people with lots of, you know, different ideas and even disagreements, I think you start connecting with people pretty quickly, meaning when you feel like-minded or when you think, God, that was inspired or interesting and I wish I'd thought of that or I didn't know you could look at things that way. And I think that's, you know, how it was for me. I felt, I guess I felt drawn to what the people that I thought were really smart and, and, or, and continue to be, you know, and interesting and thinking in new ways and not afraid to be wrong and, you know, boldly individual and a point of view that they weren't really wiggly about or they didn't waffle. They were like they had a point of view and it didn't mean they weren't open. It doesn't mean they weren't open to ideas, other ideas. But I don't know. I just, I liked people who are not cavalier and not tired and not cynical. People who come into a room and they still love what they do and they're still engaged and excited. And um, I think you can feel that pretty quickly. You know, it doesn't mean that someone who tends to be more quiet isn't just as, doesn't have as, you know, they have as much to say and it could be, you know, vastly important. Um, but, and there is something really seductive about that too. You're just, you know, you pay attention, I guess. So you went from the competitive world of fragrance to the competitive world of shoes. I mean, is it fair to say a shoe's just... With a lot in between though. Was there kind of an overall architecture to the journey, or did you find yourself, like, did you have a five-year plan and or <laughs> you mean three-year plan? to get plan? to the shoes? Yeah. No, I didn't have a plan to work in the shoe category, actually. I, I mean, was, shoe was basically a character in Sex and the City, wouldn't you? Yes. I would say we'd always say that New York City was the fifth lady. <laughs> and costumes, obviously, you know, costumes, fashion, you can include shoes, definitely. <laughs> um, I wasn't looking to work in the shoe category, actually, and when, I think when we finished, can't remember if we, after we finished the first movie or the second movie, but people had been coming and asking if I would consider producing a shoe line, and, um, you know, it was, it was very flattering. I was, it was nice to be asked, but mostly it felt, I felt, I was concerned about what people wanted from me, you know, they, which has a legitimate place, but I think, you know, most people wanted me to make a shoe that was, you know, $69 and, um, you know, produced in China, produced overseas, mass, and um, obviously there's a real need for that, but I also had concerns about the quality of that product, and I felt that there was this association with me and shoes, which I understood and it, you know, I didn't feel burdened by and I wanted to do right by the opportunity and I also, I wanted to be able to talk about the brand and feel good about it and proud of it and wear the shoes myself and everyone's like, you know, you're gonna get rich. If you do this, you'll, you know, back up the money truck and I was just like, I, I don't know. I, and so I actually, I kept saying no, and I went to have lunch with these two women who were very successful women in business, and uh, they were like, well, what are you doing in the shoe? You know, what's going on with the shoes? And I was like, I just can't do it. I feel like I, I lay in bed at night, and I'm just like, ugh, I just don't feel good about it. I don't feel good about what I'm asking of somebody else. Like, I feel like there's, I'm, it's lacking honor in some way or principle. And they said, well, what, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, what I really, if I'm going to work you know, if I'm going to produce a shoe line, I really, I mean, the dream would be to work with George Malcolmus III. And um, so George Malcolmus III is the, he's the CEO and president of Manolo Blahnik, and he has a really incredible story, and you should bring him to Chicago one day because he's far more interesting than I am, and he's a real um, raconteur. He loves to tell stories, and uh so George, very quickly, was a young man. I think he was writing copy at Bergdorf Goodman. And the head of that store came to him one day and said, and he loves shoes, and he's from Texas, and he came to New York to be you know, the next great American writer. And you know, he wasn't having that experience yet, but he was writing copy for Bergdorf's. And um, she came to him and she said, you know, there's this young designer in London, and uh, 
think he was having some financial problems and he was just starting out and she said, I think you should go meet him. He's really talented. And he went to London and he met this young fellow named Manolo Blahnik and uh, basically bought that business, brought it to the United States and built that brand here. And he's a great man and he's a man of principle and he's a man of taste. And, um, and so I told these women, well, what I'd really love to do is produce a shoe line with George, but you know, he's kind of called for, like he's busy. And um, they said, well, have you ever asked him? And I've known George for many, 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 many years prior to Sex and the City. And, uh, and I said, no, you know, I don't want to do that to him. And they said, well, what's the worst that can happen, you know? And I had had, like, what's the worst that can happen, which was so weird to me that I hadn't picked up the phone and called him because I'd had so many times alone in my shower where I was like, well, what's the worst that can happen? Which is usually that someone says no, you know? And why that's so theoretically terrifying and humiliating? Like, why do you live the humiliation before you've even, like, had the experience? <laughs> anyway, these two women said, go home and call him. And I did. I marched home and I called him and I said, you know, I know this is a long shot, but would you ever consider producing a shoe line with me? And he said, be at my office tomorrow morning, 9.30 or 8.30, or I can't remember. And I showed up and we started talking and um, we were... Uh, Within, I think, four or five months, we had our first samples from Italy, and we'll be five years in business in February. Happily, really happily in business. He's an extraordinary partner. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. American Express is reimagining solutions for small businesses with the launch of the new Business Gold Card. Business Gold helps businesses get the most out of their spending by enabling card members to automatically earn four times membership reward points on the top two select categories where their business spends the most each month. Business Gold also provides access to a suite of solutions, including a built-in pay-over-time feature, giving business owners the flexibility and tools they need to successfully run and grow their business. From managing cash flow to hiring top talent, new Business Gold card members can optimize their productivity by taking advantage of unique, limited-time offers from G Suite and ZipRecruiter as well. To learn more about the full benefits and terms, visit amex.co slash business. Last time I saw you, I actually met you at your offices, yeah. and I beat you there by 10 minutes, and so I was sitting in the room, and I watched. You didn't have individual offices. You have a long table with your team, and... It was really interesting to see because it was quite unique. There was, I think, eight seats. Mm -hmm. and It's all women. It was all women. <laughs> yep. And they had this incredible shorthand with each other. Yeah. And they were kind of laughing and then very serious and completing yeah. each other's senses and stuff. So yeah. my question is, when you started out, did you think about the kind of culture you wanted at your company and, and the kind of people that you wanted to hire? Because... It seemed very much like your kind of place. Oh. Yeah, I think, I, mean, I think we all think about, you know, the ideal working environment, not just for ourselves, but, you know, what do we want other people around us to feel like? You know, we want, in my case, I think George and I really wanted people to want to be there. We wanted them to feel happy. We wanted them to walk in the room and feel inspired and um, feel like it was a place worth their time. So... I think the culture we hope is one of, it's professional and it's respectful, but hopefully it's creative experience. You know, we, we, are, we are always exchanging ideas. I'm always asking um, Alyssa, who's here today, who is, she's my COO. She's a young woman I met. I'll tell you a story about her in a minute. Um, she's an amazing young woman. But like we're always saying, you know, well, what do the other women think? What, and even if they're, they could be in sales or they could be in, you know, any of the disciplines required under the roof, but we're always asking their opinion about everything. And I think that's the kind of place that I want to work and that I want, I want to be part of because I think everybody is better when they feel heard. Everybody is better when they feel they invest more. They have more at stake. They feel like more proprietary about the goal. And I think for the most part, we're successful. And, you know, I fall short and I make mistakes. And um, 
young new employees make mistakes and, and the biggest thing is I think the great lesson is like how do you deal with it how do you you know how are you a good leader how are you a, a kind and thoughtful uh, boss you know um, have you had to discover or build new skills to be that capital B boss because I mean, people on the sets of your movies and the show and stuff think of you as a cheerleader and very supportive, but sometimes when you're running a company and you have to not be a disciplinarian, but you have to exercise other muscles. And yeah. is that easy for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's fairly easy because because I like I like all these women a lot, and I want them to be their best. I want them to know what they can do and to expect a lot of themselves and set high standards for themselves and George and I have high standards and look the company has my name on it there's nobody else financing this company it's just me and George so we have a lot at stake and and I think that we're taken seriously but but we take every employee seriously so I mean as serious as they take us it is you know it is it is a mutual exchange of respect and so I feel as if when we have to have the harder conversations we do it you know, you do it in a decent way that someone doesn't feel destroyed. Because that just, well, that doesn't do anybody any good. Like, nothing productive comes of making someone feel lousy. And it doesn't mean that there aren't painful conversations and times you wish people were better, frankly, or cared more. But that's important to know, too. And then you decide, okay, well, what, you know, what do I want to do with this information? Maybe this isn't somebody who, this isn't the right fit. And then how do you deal with that, you know? But I think they're really good, as terrifying as they are, as uncomfortable as those conversations can be, I think they're good for us to have. I think the more, I don't know, the more I feel like I have exchanges with people that are real, the better, the more empathetic you become, the better, the better listener you are. The, you, you can see things in yourself, you know, places in which you aren't necessarily victorious either like you you can learn from somebody else's uh challenge one of the things that i think has been interesting to watch is how you've kind of inextricably linked your own way your own sensibilities with the company so for those of you who follow sarah jessica on instagram which my daughters are obsessed with uh like all of a sudden you'll be taking the subway down and showing up at Bloomingdale's or a pop-up store or something to deal with the customers one-on-one. And I think that that's been, you know, something that has certainly made a mark on your customer base or on your, even on your fan base, because I don't think a lot of people are used to that. And uh, I, you know, it's fun to see people surprised that all of a sudden you're, you're there. Like they're not expecting to have you there talking about which shoe they should buy or helping them? Well, we never tell them they should buy. Should, right, right. Um, And I always walk away after I fit them and let them make that decision on their own. Yeah, but we all love, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say we all love. I'm sure I love working at the store more than some of the other people. But, um, yeah, I love it. I love um, being on the floor. Um, Before we had our standalone stores, we, you know, traveled as much as we could even at Blooming, you know, Bloomingdale's is just at 59th and Lex, and they have a store in Soho, and we, you know, tried to be a presence there. We try to stop by and work the floor. And yeah, I try to be at our stores in New York as often as I can, and if I'm not shooting, I try to be at each store, you know, at least at either store, at least once or twice a week. That's my, my goal. And, you know, spend a few hours or more there, and, um, and it's an amazing experience. I mean, if you're trying to grow a business, there is absolutely no better way than to be on the floor. If you have a brick and mortar business, even on a slow day, it is all to your benefit to be on the floor, I think. I mean, it's... What kinds of things do you learn? Well, you learn everything. I mean, you you learn about... Um, first of all, you know, there, there are people that come see us from all over the world, literally all over the world. And so you learn about, well, first of all, you know, what do they know about our brand? And um, what, it, what do they think they know about it? Like, it's our job to introduce them to the brand if they're new. Some people just walk in because it's a very inviting store. And it's, um, you know, it's like, a, it's like a little jewel box. And so it's, you know, it has a real, it beckons. So we talk about the brand, but also we learn what people need and what they want. You know, what shoes are um, fitting people well, where we need to pay more attention. I mean, I think part of the shoes 
the brand success is just hearing people talk about what they need in their life, what is practical, but how do you make practical special? Like if, you know, if one more woman is handed like a black 70 millimeter pump because that's practical, you know, why shouldn't she have a party for her foot? Just because, just because you have to be a, you know, sensible, just because practicality has to play a role in our life, which has to play in all of our lives, doesn't mean that it can't be thrilling when you look down at your foot. So, <laughs> so um, we learn a lot. We learn about people's needs and wants. We learn about the last of the shoe. We learn about why people are drawn to that fabric instead of that leather. I mean, it's just, it's huge. And we get together and we look at numbers every single solitary night. Every night we get numbers from both stores in New York alone. And then we get numbers once a week on Monday from all of our other retail partners across the globe. And we're all paying attention. We're all looking, you know, what's selling, what's not selling, and why, and why is, why is a shoe selling really, really well on 52nd Street, and it's not selling as well on Seaport? Like, it's very strange. And it's really interesting, and it's like a puzzle, and it's a mystery, and it's our job to sort of get in front of it and figure it out. And, um, and you're just on the ground with customers. I mean, you're literally on the ground. Where are they from? What is their life like? You know, what's exciting about coming to New York from them? Have they ever been here? Who are they? Where, you know, what is their life where they live? You know, you just, you learn a huge amount about people. And it's just, it's fantastic. And I think, especially for an actor, you know, we don't get to ever, with the exception of a premiere, we're never, we're never having exchanges with an audience who's been good to us. We've never found a way to say thank you to somebody for bringing us into their home for 10 years or going to see our movie or, 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 or. And, and in this exchange, I mean, retail is wonderful. I mean, it's hard work and it's terrifying, but the wonderful part is the human, the human exchange, which you just simply don't have as an actor. It, I mean, now you do with Instagram, I guess, and social media, but it's still not touching a woman's foot. Like, you're not on the ground, looking in her eyes. She's telling you really personal stuff. Like, maybe she's had a massive victory in her life recently or overcome a health issue or, or there's just, you know, or she's a mother or she's a sister or she's a best friend and it's husbands coming in and buying shoes. Like, you know, we've been waiting to do this or people that come in and they, they're not ready to make a purchase. They can't do it. It's financially out of their grasp right now. And then they come in that time and they've saved up and they've like it's just amazing it's a really nice and very special um exchange in terms of the business what do you know now that you maybe wish you had known five years ago i mean because you're learning it sounds like you're learning so much all the time is yeah. there kind of like that one outlier kind of I piece of information I, I bet i i bet what we would say is that we probably could have it was hard initially for some of our retail partners to understand what we were trying to do. And I think in the beginning we were, we were trying to be all things to all people. And I think that is unique to women. It's not, we don't, you know, it's not singular, but I do think that, I think had I been, I, I'm, maybe I'm just imagining this, but I think had I been a man in business, I might have pushed a little bit more what I knew to be what we could do, what we, what I felt distinguished us in the market. And initially I think some of our retail partners were nervous because it was different and I think we're, we were polite and we were um, humble and um, we wanted to do right by their faith in us as partners, but we also, in doing so, didn't produce and force them to detail for their stores what we knew would set us apart. And it just took time. And, uh, but I do think if I had been a, I, I feel as if I'd been a man, I might have been less polite and more confident in what I knew to be true about our business. Instead of being, you know, sort of well-behaved and well-thought of. Does that make sense? Right. Yes. <laughs> okay. Thanks. <laughs> you look totally perplexed. Like, no, I... Like, um, I have no idea. No, I'm just I, kidding. No, I thought just it kidding. was... thought you were being very transparent. <laughs> so, 
the and ubiquitous. And that's our fault, by the way. That's not the fault of our retail partners, but that's just, you know, part of, it's what you learn. The ubiquitous balancing question, triage. Huh. So you have a, another series on HBO now. You have your company, you have your family. Let's talk about how Sarah Jessica balances, uh, because when the show is going, you can't be stopping by the stores no. twice a week. So no. what's that like? Is that like withdrawal? Or is like yeah, it's, it's a little bit hard. Like I, I'm trying to work as much as I can. We start shooting divorce in January, so I'm trying to be at the stores as much as possible. And that includes you know, some of our other partners in town and traveling to, um, we have a store outside DC. I'm trying to do a, like front load a bunch of stuff before I disappear. But here's the thing too, and this is the part I've also learned about business, like your company has to stand on its own. The shoes have to stand on their own. And I think I'm always a little bit like, well, I can fix ever I can fix that, I can, you know, I'll go in there that time and we're gonna, you know. And you know, everybody's extremely good at what they do inside those stores. They don't need me. It brings me joy to be there and to participate and be in the stock room and really work. But I also have to trust that not only are they really good and equipped and experienced you know, sales associates, but also the shoes have to stand on their own. Like I have to trust that the product doesn't need me there. It can speak for itself now, you know? So it's hard to walk away because I love it. And I, you know, I feel like, oh, I should be there and look at the shelves and look at this and make sure that's right. And, but there are great people that are as good at that as I am. Do you think you're going to be coming off the uh, set of divorce in January and checking the numbers every night? I will. I'll get emails every night, yeah. We all get them. I mean, if you sign up for the email, you get it. But I didn't sign up. I actually really have to get it. It's not like one of those, like like a news flash. It's actually, I, I really have to get it. And it's, you know, it's mostly really great. And then there are some days where you're just like, oh, lordy. Wow, that's a real kick in the rubber parts. That was not a good day. But if there's a, <laughs> how does this work though? Because if there's a bad day, or let's say, it's a slow day. Let's say slow, slow day. day, slow day. Yeah. And then you have to go out and act. So you've learned to bifurcate. There's a sense of detachment or yeah, something. Yeah, I mean, that, you know when something's of grave concern, and a slow day. I mean, in general, in perspective, like in the world, a slow day at the shoe store just doesn't stack up to other actual things that are. Except that it is a business. I'm not diminishing in any way this, that it's a business, but so there's that. But then, you know, it's a slow day. And then you have a day in, in inexplicably, you know, terrible weather, and you have a great day on the, you know, the, the very day you'd think would be, you know, so completely unappealing for people to be walking the streets and popping into a shoe store. So, yeah, so I mean, I, it, I keep it in perspective, and I, and I look to my partner, and if he's not worried, then, then I won't be worried. And, and, you know, part of growing is figuring out how to handle information and developing some coping mechanisms so everything's not an urgent, terrifying issue. Well, it's, I guess it's more than coping, though, right? It's the ability to turn it off. And so you yeah. have a slow day, but, I mean, you're shooting a comedy. So, like, if you're upset... At I get them late at night. Right. I, I, we get them... Typically, 52nd Street comes in around 7.40, and Seaport comes in a little bit later. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, you know, far more difficult than finding a place for that information is being on a set and hearing that, you know, a child has a fever at school. Like, that will interrupt whatever you're doing far more than, than one slow day or even two slow days, you know, at a shoe store. The success of the shoe business, though, I would assume has opened up other doors or at least other possibilities. How are you framing your business life for, let's say, the next several years? Do you, are you going to vertically integrate? Are you just content with what you're doing right now? What's your mind like right now about that? Um, well, we're very, um, we're cautious. We're you know, we're trying to expand in smart ways. It's always, I always say it's very encouraging. It's very flattering when people, you know, say, you know, you should open more doors and grow the business, you know, this way or that way, vertically or horizontally. <laughs> um, that was a joke. But a horizontal is not a goal. 
typically, right? People are like, it's a horizontal move. I think what we're trying to do is, is grow it smart. And we're not necessarily looking at a sort of conventional business model of like in five years, the company will be valued at this and then it'll be appealing to outsiders and maybe someone will want to come in and you know sweep us off our feet. I think this is a business that we are deeply invested in, not just financially, but emotionally and and on a, I mean, we work the business. And so for us, it's, you know, how do we grow it? How do we, you know, continue to listen to the customer? How do we give her more and uh, make it more available, tell our story to, a, you know, to a broader audience, uh, but maintain all the points of pride that we've worked so hard to create, both, you know, with the quality of the shoe and who we are and our customer service and the way, we treat every single person that walks in the door. And those are things that are hard to maintain growing. I mean, we've seen it. There's so many cautionary tales of businesses that grew too quickly. And, and also just, you know, retail is really, it's finicky and it's a kind of fair weather friend and you have to be really smart. So we'll continue to add smart little categories that always will leave our customer with something, you know, that she can always grab. But we're just going to be smart and prudent and wise about our growth, we think. I mean, that's the way we've tried to be. Can you unpack for us your customer base for a second? Because do you see generational differences? We hear a lot about millennials. They'd rather spend money going to a music festival than buying a, you know, a luxury piece of uh, luggage or mm. perhaps a handbag or maybe even shoes. Are you starting to appreciate or see any differences between the generations that come into the store? I would say we've, in our own small way, we've really accomplished the thing that I wanted from the very beginning, which was that our brand is for everyone. People would ask in the, minute, you know, in the very beginning when we launched, like, who's your customer? Who's your customer? And it was like, everybody's our customer. Everybody's our customer. We, you know, I want to try to make happy and offer up to women of all sizes and shapes and backgrounds. And we've worked really hard to tell that story. And our customers are 17 and 87 and everybody in between. I mean, it's really true. That is, who, that is our customer. And, and they all look different and sound different and smell different and they have different colored skin and they're from different backgrounds and they walk in the door and they're the most important person that walked in that door and we sincerely feel that way and I think it's you know I feel that they are part of this process I feel like there's been a, this gang of 10 million women who gave me a huge amount of their life and I uh, so we think about them every time we're designing the next collection they are part of that conversation. And when they come in, they should know that, and they should feel, and they should hear, I know I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have this business if they hadn't allowed me in their life. That they are much a part of this conversation. They are as much a part of this business as I am. And so I think that's why our customer is everybody in this room? You know what I mean? There's not, we right. don't have a customer. And some, the price is still out of reach and some women come in and originally they, we weren't enough money. We, the price point wasn't high enough. Really, I would say to them, why won't you take this seriously? It's made in the same factories in Italy that all those other, you know, the ones that you prefer to pay more for. Like, I, I, it, it's baffling, you know? Shopping is a very interesting experience. Like it's a very, people have very specific ways of being in the world as consumers and you really gotta freaking listen to it because it's, it's amazing. Only in uh, New York, it's not expensive enough. Seriously. Um. <laughs> and even early on in our, with retail partners, they would say, well, you know, if the price is too low, I mean, it was stunning to hear, absolutely stunning. Let's open it up for a moment. Are there any questions for Sarah Jessica? So you're so authentic, and I'm just thrilled to feel your passion as you speak about things. But what are some of the obstacles? I know you said you had to listen and you had to learn. We're all learning every single day. But what's like the biggest obstacle that you're like, God, I wish I would have done something differently? I think there are lots of little things, and I'm very bad with anecdotes, you know. But I think, honestly, the biggest obstacle, I think sometimes when I feel like I wish I had done something differently, 
it's often because I wasn't courageous enough to really take a position. And, and I took it, but I think it takes a, I don't know, for me, I think I, you know, I really like people and, you know, I've seen things go poorly and I've been spoken to in ways that I didn't like. So I think the biggest challenge for me is just really both being firm and being, you know, kind and firm, like, I don't know, just feeling more confident about that. And, and I think too, you know, we were just talking about this price point thing and though it sounds completely like madness, you know, we've had a bunch of occasions where we brought a shoe out that we loved, like what we call um, for market, you know what market means, like sales appointments with retail partners, they come and we show them the collection. And we've had a couple shoes that like we deeply loved, believed in, no, 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 I couldn't get any attention. No love, nothing, nothing, nothing. And then we'll see it happen, like, you know, Gucci will have it. This, And then our little sweet shoe that we were like, look, you know, we think this is a really special shoe. So then we'll come to the market sort of late. Like, we have to be more aggressive. We have to, I think, be, like, show off a little bit more. Like, but that's, I don't think any of us who work at our company, that's not our nature. So I think that's a challenge too, is just being really like pushy, you know, but because- In, in a nice way. Yeah, in a really pleasant nice. way, <laughs> yeah. Over here. Um, you talked a lot about what the in-store experience is like for these customers coming to some of your stores in New York, but how do you continue that customer journey after that interaction? and? make sure that loyalty is driven between you and that customer and that that experience lives on past the one or maybe two interactions in store? Um, some of it's just, you know, the way that we engage on social media. I mean, we have a really nice social media following that we grew from day one with no followers. Alyssa, I'm pointing at Alyssa again, my young COO, um, who I met and she was my assistant and now she's running all the businesses. She's amazing, but you know, like many of you in the room, extraordinary women. So what's happened for us is that people come back and they come back again and again and again to the store, even, even if they're not gonna buy a pair of shoes. And I think that is simply we, you know, we reach out to them, we we let them know when things are special, things are arriving. We sort of connect. You know, sales associates have connections with certain customers. We answer every question, you know, that comes in through our social media, through the website. Like we are just as on it as we can be. And short of like handwritten letters and just checking up on them and their families, <laughs> like. That's what we do. I mean, we, can, we do as much as we can, and we don't do it just because, you know, it's like a mercenary exercise, but because we like it, and it's nice, and it creates a real relationship. You know, when we get these emails every night, there's included in the emails are always stories, at least two or three stories per store on customers and the name and where they came from and what they tried on and what that experience is like and you know where those shoes are traveling off tonight i don't know it's just uh yeah that's what we do we just we try to um make them feel like they're not going to be forgotten and they aren't when it comes to the employees that you have it seems as if you really do take time to connect with them and you understand that they will represent your brand through the customer service that they're providing. So, A, how do you find these people who really <laughs> do represent you through your shoes and through how they take care of your clientele? What's kind of key for you in that process? Well, um, with 52nd Street, it's kind of an, a nice story is um, we have a woman who's our manager of 52nd Street, which is our pop-up shop, which opened about a year ago. It opened a year ago next week. And uh, there was um, our pop-up shop, which I say is permanently temporary and temporarily permanent. But there was a sales associate at Bloomingdale's who really loved our brand and we noticed it and we, 
we made a connection with her and we stayed in touch and she left Bloomingdale's and George said, you know who I think should be the manager of the store? And we called Heather and she came and so she reached out to people that she had worked in retail and we have enormous trust and faith in her. She's a really lovely person, but she's also very hardworking and she knows as much about the shoe brand as, as I know or Alyssa or George or Flo. And um, so we trusted her. We met all the people that she felt would be the right fit. They trained. We talked to them a huge amount. And then they hit the floor. And then they tell us stuff. I mean, at this point, they've been on the floor more than we have, so we'll learn from them. But you can also see really quickly, like when you're working the floor a lot and you're watching how people relate with customers, you see very quickly who's having an easy time being decent and hospitable and who's having a harder time. Because it's not for everybody to... Not everybody wants to host a party all day long. Like, it just doesn't suit every person. And you see it, and sometimes they recognize that before you do. And they, you know, people will reveal themselves. But, um, you know, you have to sort of lead people and then let them lead themselves. And um, so we've had really good luck. And and some of our other stores, um, we try to really touch base and make them feel informed, help them to feel informed and... um, you know, we do our best. We're not in a position in all of our stores to take that much control because they're not all our own stores. So, I am being told that our time is up, but I um, want to thank American Express and the great you, Sarah Express. Jessica Parker. Thank you all so much. You were so nice. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Hey friends, this is Jen Hatmaker, your happy host of the For the Love podcast. You may wonder how I got into this podcasting thing. Well, I'm a speaker and an author who has happened to write a few New York Times bestselling books that really resonated with a pretty large community of women. And I thought, how great would it be to drop into the ears of this growing community every week via the magic of podcasting? So that's what we did. And I'm delighted to say we've been able to spark a bit of delight and uncover some hope and talk with great people about the big and small things that we care about and that affect our lives on the daily. So I'm thrilled to invite you to join me every Wednesday for new episodes of the For the Love podcast, where you'll hear the most incredible conversations with some of the best people on this planet. We're going to bring you moments of connection and laughter and hot takes on the things we care about going on in the world. So listen to and follow For the Love with Jen Hatmaker a Four Eyes media production presented by Odyssey. You can get it on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.